back. We're back. It's been a minute. Mm-hmm. We had a whole cheshvan. We had a whole month of no holidays. But you and I, we just had nothing to do in our lives. Nothing was going on. We sat and waited. Mm-hmm. Patiently. Quietly. For our return to the temple of this podcast. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you can see that we're surrounded. We're both surrounded by candles. Lots of votive candles from the Walgreens. Consecrated Walgreens votive candle lights. This is our Hanukkah episode. I'm Ezra. I'm Agnes. (laughs) Maybe we already did. There was already an intro. We're shaking off the dust off our wings. We're rededicating ourselves, really. It's been a minute. We just, yeah, I feel we're getting in, getting in rusty, rusty. But I just also, I mean, before we, we've gotten some good emails in the past weeks to our email address, twoqueers4questions at gmail.com. And uh, just an early episode reminder that um, that conversation is welcome and, and it's happening. Yeah, email us uh, with ideas, dreams, rants, rebukes. Should we dive in? What's what is Hanukkah? What is what are we what are we doing today? What is Hanukkah? Okay, I'm going to tell you the basics of Hanukkah. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't, and then Agnes will will tell you the story that led to Hanukkah being celebrated. So. Hanukkah starts on the 25th of Kislev. As the winter is getting really dark, eight nights in a row, you light increasing numbers of candles. One candle on the first night, two on the second night, etc. In a menorah or Hanukkah, this eight-branched candelabra, which usually people put in the window, or they put it in the doorway as part of this uh, value of Pirsume Nisa, which is publicizing the miracle, like making sure your neighbors can see that you're celebrating this holiday and that this miracle happened to the Jewish people back in the first century, B- second century BC, I think. Second century. We say in, in, in prayers, if you go to Shul, they, they say Hallel. Um, which is this celebratory sequence of psalms that involves a lot of singing. There is a blessing that you add to the daily prayers that is a hyper-condensed history of Hanukkah. Traditions that go with Hanukkah are stuff like uh, eating foods fried in oil because of the centrality of oil to the holiday, like uh, the legendary potato latke, sufganiyot, are these jelly donuts fried in oil. There's the traditional game of dreidel, the spinning top with four letters. Depending on which letter it lands on, you you get part of the pot of gelt, meaning money. Sometimes American Jews just, just mean chocolate money when they say gelt. But gelt means money in, uh, in Yiddish. Sometimes people who speak Yiddish get annoyed that, that Americans say gelt when they mean chocolate money. Uh... I feel like Yiddish speakers are often annoyed about America. Well, if if you speak Yiddish, it's your job to complain. And more recently, uh, giving gifts is a part of Hanukkah, and it's mostly like an, 
an American thing, and it's and it's a like um, being living next door to Christians who around the same time are often celebrating Christmas. I don't know. To me, we'll get into this later, but I I am I am not into comparing this holiday to Christmas at all. It's uh, not similar. And in fact, that's kind of a simulationist thing to do is to make it like the Jewish Christmas. Uh, and the theme of the holiday is, in fact, expressly against assimilation, cultural and religious assimilation, which leads me to introduce our historian, Agnes Borinsky, to talk about the story of Hanukkah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so the story is goes back to the Second Temple period, where in about 167 BCE, um, the Greek ruler Antiochus issued this religious edict or banning observance of religious practice in Judea. And this is actually, I just, I learned that this is the first religious-based edict in history. So this is sort of the first ruling about not being wow. able to practice your religion. Um, this precedent was set by Antiochus. And there was a rebellion against Antiochus, uh, lasted a couple of years. And finally, the sort of fanatical anti-assimilationist Maccabee leaders re-entered the ruined Jerusalem, the ruined temple, and rededicated it, which at the moment meant finding sort of like a little jar of oil that had been consecrated by the priests. And they lit, there was only a little bit of this consecrated oil left. They lit it, and the story of the miracle of a one of the miracles of the holiday is that that oil, which seemed like it should only be enough to last for one day, lasted for eight days. Um, just to sort of like continue this, the arc of the story beyond that, the Hasmonean dynasty, which is what the rulership of these this priestly clan of Maccabees came to be known as, lasted for another 200 years or so and only ended with the destruction of the second temple in 70 CE. So it's really this big turning point between being a, um, a people subject to a higher rule to having this sort of literalized political power. Um, and that's why this story has often been sort of like made parallel to the Bar Kokhba rebellion in the second century and then to sort of Zionist traditions later, which is we'll get into a little bit further on in the conversation. But it's these sort of twin miracles of the Maccabees overcoming the Greek empire and then this oil lasting for, for eight days. So it's, so it's kind of like a Independence Day. Yeah. Like, which I guess I, I wasn't aware of. I, but I feel like I want it to be more in the, in the spirit of, um, well, I don't know. I think we have to engage the ugliness of it in the spirit of the, the Will Smith movie um, than the 4th <laughs> of July. But I, yeah, it's a question, though, of like, is this, is this independence that we seem to be claiming what we want? Like, is this, there's sort of a tussle in this sort of history of discussions of this holiday, of whether it's a spiritual metaphor, whether it's an actual political event um, that we're honoring and celebrating which maybe is maybe this is question time do we feel ready to it's time it's time for the four questions of hanukkah which we have written so you don't have to and the first question is who is the enemy and how do we fight them slash it Oof. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sort of the shadow question to this or the shadow framing is that there are in some ways two 
you know, there's the Greek empire as one em- enemy that the, the Maccabees are fighting against, but there's also the enemy of assimilationist Jews that you have these Hellenized Jews who are going around, have forgotten the centrality of temple worship and of the tradition as, as practiced by these um, purists. So, right. So, yeah, it seems as the, I think there was kind of this internal civil war going on between the Jews who were trying to Hellenize, you know, become, incorporate Greek culture. I'm not sure what that meant, if that was like more analogous to like reform Judaism or if that was like, yeah, I don't know if it was sort of like, let's live alongside Greek culture and welcome some of it in and we can name ourselves Jason and Menelaus or if it was more extreme than that and like, Judaism's over, the Greeks are the new thing. But the theme is definitely like assimilation is a threat from within and forced assimilation and like the outlawing of Judaism becomes a threat from without. And it's always taught to me as like, they, we have our own like sort of unshakable set of values and then people from the outside came in and tried to destroy it and we fought back but like truthfully it was the question is always more complex than that about like what um threatens the what threatens or doesn't threaten the integrity of judaism how much assimilation is a good thing protects us that might give us power that might give us um safety and when does it start to be a corrosion of who we are in a tragic way and and that's there's like no line the line is so blurry there and it's one of the most interesting questions to me about being a minority community under under a more powerful culture's um, purview, rule, power. I mean, the irony is that of all the holidays, Hanukkah is the one that has some of the most marks of assimilation. As you were pointing out, like the gift-giving tradition is entirely a thing that came with the U.S. in the twenty early 20th century. Um, it sort of gets, it becomes a way of, both marking difference, but also saying like, but we have one too. We have a winter holiday too. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that, that, that as you're saying that there's no clear line with assimilation is that does resisting assimilation mean that you're resisting any change in what a, what a culture looks like, what a, what a tradition looks mm-hmm. like, you mm-hmm. know, does, does, does anti-assimilation or a sort of insistence on your own, the cent- holding, holding fast to the center of what you value mean, never just sort of plugging your ears and 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 insisting on doing things the way they've they've quote unquote always been done this sort of often fantasy that's often projected into the past of this is how things have always been yeah and i mean it encourages that i like the fear of assimilation encourages that i like to think that there's a sort of natural and unforced evolution of a culture that 
can is supposed to happen and you don't need to resist change like in itself but maybe you do need to resist like the process of completely i don't know of like forgetting who your culture is or who it would be without the influence of the reigning empire i i'm a little i'm a little disappointed that this year um Hanukkah's early Hanukkah it comes unusually at the end of November it starts this year just um from a quirk in the calendar a lot of things are early this year and this really was like in the past I felt like the war on Christmas was like my response was like shut up Christians we don't care about you there's no war on Christmas but this year I'm more like get to your battle stations let's Let's make let's make war on Christmas. I'm into it now because I'm feeling like I'm feeling so anti-assimilationist as a Jew, as a queer. I'm feeling like like I'm sick of empire. And the more I wake up to its corroding influence, the more I'm like, I want to be less closeted than ever. I want to look weird to people on the street. You know, I want to burn candles where everyone can see them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, on the subway, in the supermarket. I think, I feel like the, the other word that sort of is lurking behind all of this, and I I relate to that desire to, re- to be like hard to swallow in a certain way, is like, <laughs> is this question of power? Because that's sort of the other, that's sort of the subtext, I think, for it, of, of it for me, is that relationship to where is the authority of our being coming from? I mean, I feel like this holiday, I'm sort of like obsessed with the idea that this holiday, we move from the space of, we've been talking about Rumi and we've been talking about poetry and this sort of mythical realm of the past. And all of a sudden we're in a space of politics. We're listening to The Daily with Michael Barbaro. Like that's the feeling of this holiday is to me that we suddenly move into the realm of the political and the realm of like the messiness of worldly power. Um, And yeah, I think a lot of what the regulation of before this edict was happened that sort of sparked the rebellion, there was religious freedom within Jerusalem. The Jews could practice their religion, but there was this sense like, oh, this is a thing that you're getting by the grace of the empire. The empire is so good to you by giving you this little modicum of freedom within this space. And so mm-hmm. even though you have this freedom to practice your religion, you're ultimately within this framework of being dependent on empire for that freedom. And I think that one of the big things of this holiday is how do you reorient your thinking so that you remember you're never, your sense of self is never dependent on empire. It's dependent on God, if, if nothing else. And we find ourselves ensnared even in enactments of behaviors and art making and life choices that feel to us like freedom when secretly they're just sort of further enshrining the power of empire i mean this is we were talking about this before you brought up this idea of like the major label deal like you know i I, the great matilda bernstein sycamore gave this talk over the summer where she was saying like you know we're in a moment where hollywood where publishing where all these industries are interested in trans stories or interested in queer stories like this is a moment when these stories are being brought into the mainstream in a way they never have been and she's like that's great and i'm never going to object to a girl getting paid but also let's remember that that these 
big publishers, these big media companies are never going to have our backs in a in a permanent way. As soon as as soon as it becomes inconvenient for them to support these stories, and as soon as they stop being able to make money off these stories, we're back, uh, yeah, on the street. And so I think that that to me is like that question of are we when we exercise our freedom, is it in what power is it in relationship to, and who who what is the source of our freedom? Um, is it empire? Is it is it something higher? Yeah, and the empire will like change your your stories as they try to profit off of them, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it it is yes, it's the question of eighties Indian punk bands taking the major label deal. Like it seems to give them a lot of power. It might give them a lot of reach, and like what is is something lost by like no longer being able to say like. Uh, we are over here and giant multinational corporations are over there and we don't collaborate. And like, personally, I think there is always going to be something lost. It just might be, uh, in in some cases it might be worth it, but you got to like watch out, you know, it, this is a holiday. Also, it always coincides with reading the story of Joseph in Genesis and Joseph goes, Joseph gets sold by his own family as into slavery and is a slave in Egypt and is late. Then gains some power and then is imprisoned and then suddenly becomes second in command to Pharaoh and just suddenly is like, has so much power he changes his name. He assimilates. He uh, marries an Egyptian. It's not a, it's not a cautionary tale about that. Really. It's like, this is what a good person does with that power. And he finds a way to, to survive a famine and feed lots of people. There might be some implied criticisms of like the eventual results end up being slavery in Egypt and uh, centralized power of the of the throne, but there's like there's like something about I don't know. There's also something about um, a minority group under empire that like they become like hyper themselves. You know, um, it's like it's more obvious how different they are, and we start to like want to defend ourselves when when we see like that other people don't like us for being different. This, this whole, this whole topic made me think of this Zora Neale Hurston episode. Um, I mean, essay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm watching too much TV. Maybe, um, Zora Neale Hurston, she wrote this great essay called how it feels to be colored me. And, um, it contains these lines I feel most colored when I am thrown against a sharp white background. For instance, at Barnard, this is, she goes on, she, she studied at Barnard as an undergraduate. I feel my race. Among the thousand white persons, I am a dark rock surged upon and overswept. But through it all, I remain myself. When covered by the waters, I am. And the ebb but reveals me again. I mean, she's saying that like being around all these white people doesn't 
change her. It sort of, but it makes her more herself. Um, it, or just, it makes her feel more colored, which she embraces. Um, and thrown against a sharp white background. It's like very striking image. And I, I, there's something I embrace about that effect of Hanukkah. And even that I don't mind and even like about its proximity to, to Christmas that like, I want that juxtaposition to make us seem like more Jewish. It's almost like the, the empire like gives you a bit of a megaphone and you can choose what to say into it. It's almost like we need our enemies. Ooh, like Peter Pan and Captain Hook. I mean, we've never, we've never really been ones to land on answers for our questions, but I feel like if we're, if I had to venture an answer to our original question of who is the enemy and how do we fight against them, it would be a reframing to say, like, just to understand the ground on which we stand. Like, what is, what is the foundation that we are standing on and how do we be clear at every moment that that's what we need to be focused on? In some ways, the enemy is always is ever shifting and doesn't matter. Um, it's it's remembering, yeah. yeah, or like the power that we stand to gain control of is only power if we um, use it for our, our actual purposes and use it to be ourselves. Otherwise, it becomes something that takes power over us. Yeah. Yes. 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 And yeah. Like real power is is staying true to yourself while you're holding that megaphone. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we. I think we. I think that's the. I think that's the button. I think we turn to the next question. Question two. Question two. What ruins is it time for us to rededicate? Great question. I mean, I mean, this is the name. The name of the holiday, Hanukkah, comes from this idea of rededication or dedication. Yes. And I also think that I, I like the idea that it's, we're not rebuilding quite yet. We're in, we're in the ruins. We are finding the oil that is sanctified and we are recommitting ourselves, standing in the midst of these ruins to what's most important. But, but what do we look, when we look at around now, what are the ruins? What, what are we rededicating here? What are we rededicating today? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of, the holiday might be an invitation also to ask, like, what has been ruined? What has been, like, invaded and desecrated that is just waiting for us to get it back in the shape we want it in? I feel like I have to bring, I've got to bring this little piece of Torah from a commentator named the Malbim. So a, a psalm that is associated with Hanukkah is Psalm 30. It starts with Mizmor Shir Chanukat Habayit David. This is a song for the dedication of the house by David. And the house tends to refer to the temple. And um, David, of course, like predates Hanukkah by centuries, I believe. And um, it, it was sort of noticed as weird that like, what is this? David is actually, was actually dead before the temple was even built. How is there a dedication of the temple um, by David? And then also why this, the rest of the psalm seems like to be this prayer about recovery from illness, actually. And there's no mention of dedicating a temple. And so the Malbim says about that, that uh, 
the house in question is actually a metaphor for the body. The temple is the human body, which is the residence of the soul and the inner home for the person who dwells within it. I've lapsed into a quotation from the Malbim. Because the soul is the real person, while the physical body is only a material home for it to dwell in. I'm into that idea for a couple of reasons. That, the, that, that Hanukkah actually might be about rededicating the body. One is because like, it's this holiday that is about the temple in Jerusalem, but we don't have the temple in Jerusalem. Like the rabbinic celebration of this holiday, the, the rabbinic change of like, okay, we're going to light these candles in our homes. Now, that was a thing the rabbis did with a lot of holidays. We'll, we'll relocate the temple rituals to the home. The home becomes the temple. But then there remains a problem for somebody who's actually, for somebody who's homeless. I guess I didn't write down this whole quote. I think the Malbim goes on to talk about, um, or maybe this was in some other Dvar Torah or something, but like a person without a home can still say blessings for Hanukkah. And the body kind of becomes the home. Like if you've got your home, if you've got your body and you're alive, you have a home to rededicate. I feel like, well, I feel like being trans is like, could be seen as rededicating an invaded and desecrated body. I feel like that my body has been sort of desecrated. I've been desecrated by forces of repression. And I've spent years like with, with, the, <laughs> with like sort of um, a body that's not being honored, you know? like the temple in which they built a statue of Zeus, which, you know, still makes me mad just to say it out loud, <laughs> imagining them building a statue of Zeus in the temple. Even as distant as the temple is as a historical memory, I just like to think about them building a statue <laughs> of Zeus in there and I'm just so pissed off. <laughs> so, like, I feel like the patriarchy and the, like, transmisogyny, like, kind of built this these statues of false gods in me and I'm, I'm here to reclaim my body and, and fix it up the way I want it and rededicate it to the body. It's uh, it wants to be. Amen. Amen. I find that very moving. It also, I mean, it also makes me realize that the, we're not talking about rebuilding the temple. We're talking about rededicating it. And, you know, as I feel my own body change and the ways I inhabit my body change, it's not, I don't, it doesn't feel like it's in a state of completion or pristine readiness. Mm. And it's about going into the ruins as they are and dedicating them and, and finding the sanct- the sacred space, the sacred center that's in them. Regardless of that. I mean, I, I'm still in love with Aviva Zornberg's discussion of Egypt and building in Egypt. And mm. she talks about the Midrash that there are, the bodies of the dead are sort of built into the walls of the buildings that the enslaved Egyptians or enslaved Hebrews were building in Egypt. Um, and I, I think that I have a, an in, instinctive discomfort or mistrust of edifices of, of things that are built mm. with an aspiration to permanence, things that are sort of like monumental architecture. And um, because I think when you or even institutions that are built, to, you know, we talk about a sustainability all the time. Like, let's build something that is a sustainable 
organization, I don't know that organizations are meant to last forever. I don't know that um, buildings are meant to last forever. You know, that, that, that the focus is not on building, not on rebuilding, not on building something stronger, not on building something more beautiful, not on bringing in Frank Gehry. It's about just finding that little bit of oil and lighting a candle in the middle of it. And, you know, whether this building is rebuilt or not, whether it's going to be ruined again, certainly it will be ruined again. Certainly tidal waves will come, earthquakes will come, fires will come, but we still have this ability to find that center, that rededication. Yeah. Well, it's also sort of the process of our contemporary spiritual lives that, I mean, we live, we were born into ruins, you know, that there's a single wall the Western wall of the temple is still standing and they're not rebuilding that temple. Um, they're, they're just going to what remains and just the idea that you can declare a ruined thing ready anyway. Yeah. And also it reminds me of transgender bodies, which like might go through big changes like surgery and those kind of like, construction changes and they might not and the essence of the thing is is the declaration the dedication of the body to being this kind of body this kind of body that we're honoring that we have a it's a conceptual rebuilding is is the most important thing here's what this edifice this body whether it's ruined or rebuilt or not here's what it means here's where it stands here's what we believe about it yeah and there's also i mean that's also the just the fact is there are some things you can't rebuild there are losses you can't get back but this image of re-entering a ruin i mean like there's just there's people who died you know and uh you can't get those people back there's we live in the ruin of the holocaust and all this staggering loss all the loss all these all these people these minds that will never speak their wisdom and write their books i guess the thought i'm trying to get words around is like we still can approach that ruin and dedicate it for use and find the find the jar of oil that is there that's usable yeah yeah i mean yeah uh, I sort of feel tiptoey around making this claim in relation to what you just said, but I remember something clicked in my brain when I realized that categories of purity and impurity, at least in the Bible, were not value judgments and not absolute. That like something doesn't become sullied forever when it becomes impure. You just have to go through the process of making it pure again. And that any body, any object is going to move through cycles of purity and impurity. And I, I feel like that's been a lesson of the last years for me of not, I think I learned in whatever way or for whatever reason to see suffering as a bad thing or to see failure as a thing to be avoided. And I, I think that this central act of rededication is about, I mean, talk about teshuva, like this, this possibility of endless return um, that you can always begin again, no matter what has happened, you can always come back. You can always rededicate. Um, and that in some ways, even the greatest devastation, the greatest suffering can be an invitation to 
come back to that central that central light that central singular flame can we can we ask the third question i think i think we must question three (laughs) go ahead which miracle or where do we want to look for our miracles miracle is such a funny word and i i I don't remember ever talking about what exactly a miracle is in all of my day school education, just to sort of assume that that's what you said. Oh, this was a miracle. That was a miracle. It's like the word redemption. I don't think it's ever really examined what that word means. And in asking which miracle, you know, there's, there's sort of the shift from in the rabbinic period from focusing on the miracle of this military victory to focusing on this miracle of, the oil lasting for eight days. And so there is this sense already within this holiday that we can redefine the miraculous, that we're sort of in this dance between worldly victory and some kind of a more more spiritual victory. Um, I was doing some reading about miracles, at least as various rabbis and commentators talk about them. And the thing that comes up over and over again with Hanukkah is that it's the first post biblical miracle weirdly the book of maccabees is not in the hebrew bible even though it tells the story of this victory it's the book of Hmm. esther the purim is the last sort of like the latest miracle and the svat emet has this beautiful commentary where he says that why do we need miracles? You know, why if we have, we have had so many enemies throughout history, if God really wanted to, God could have had avoided this whole enemy situation. Like we didn't need to be oppressed in the first place. God is all powerful, but sometimes we get oppressed so that God can come in and just sort of remind us that we're dependent on God. And hmm. this is when miracles happen. Um, and that every once in a while, it's like you need an oil change. You need a sort of re up on your relationship to divine authority. And this, this sort of, ultimate dependence on God. The Sfat Emet says that he had the Purim miracle, miracle, and that was sort of like, that was the nimbus under which we were living. And then that sort of wore out a little bit, got a little um, out of style. And so the new line came out and it was the Hanukkah line. And that is (laughs) the last miracle we've had. We've been like, that's been the miracle that we've been under and with ever since it happened. There hasn't been another miracle since then. And so we're still living in the era of this miracle it's a miracle we still have access to for rededication and also according to the Sfat Emet the next big miracle is going to become be the coming of Mashiach and so we're sort of in this I love this idea that this is this like 2,000 year old 2,000 year long miracle yeah this miracle I know and and to frame all of the last 2,000 years as like an ongoing iteration of the Hanukkah miracle. Like, how does that make us think about Jewish history? It, it kind of works. I mean, like, like these questions of, I don't know, living as a minority under empire and like how we deal with that, how we meaningfully resist it, like is sort of the question you, you could put that question over any century of the last 200 centuries as like the question that is troubling Judaism. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's the perennial question of Judaism. I sometimes think the point of the Jewish people as a whole and, or of the Torah 
is like a less is like to explain to the world how to treat a subgroup in a larger society, how to love the stranger, how to let a subculture be itself, or or and also teach the subcultures how to how to insist on your on yourselves on your identity. So we're in that miracle, and and yeah, I also I also dislike the t- the word miracle. I don't totally get it. Does it have to be supernatural? I don't actually dislike the word supernatural also because anything that happens happens in the universe, the world of nature, right? Like, um, well, you've talked about how there are certain ways of reading the world that see every life as miraculous and every, the blooming yeah. of every flower and the, yeah, I mean, that's a question. Yeah. Does I prefer to see it, to take nothing for granted and to, to retain the ability to celebrate any day of my life as a miraculous day, an unexpected privilege. But there is, I think a miracle is like something that kind of has to be declared a miracle. Like if you just, 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 once you call it a miracle, you've made a choice. And like, that's the choice that I think we're trying to ask about. Like, I think it seemed in, in the original context, it might've seemed that the Hanukkah miracle was this military victory over a much more powerful um, oppressor. And the Talmud, the Mishnah declared the miracle to be this miracle of oil lasting in the temple and it and it shifts the focus from the New York Times <laughs> daily podcast back to Rumi <laughs> no or maybe it it shifts the focus from like political realities to like inner realities to like realities of values and what um i don't know issues of sacredness issues of religion rather than like tribal power and i mean that's an interesting question for me like what do i care more for like what if i'm going to be an activist am i an activist of the political or am i an activist of sort of the spiritual you know artists are sort of these spiritual activists in a way that's how i see my being an artist um i'm i am like trying to move the needle on um, my own and other people's sense of uh, the transcendent. Um, but, but I'm also, of course, certainly interested in social activism, political activism, things that are like more bottom liney. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a line between these things, you know, um, for me, a, a spiritually health, the spiritually um, vivid life makes my actual life better. I think it makes people's life better. I think politics depends on values and uh, a sense of the transcendent. Since you know, human rights is a political issue only if we take it for granted as being a transcendently important moral issue. I mean, thinking about that question, the worldly question of politics, I've been thinking a lot recently watching what's the sort of ongoing catastrophe of um, the city of Los Angeles and policy towards the unhoused. You know, there was this 
bill that was passed a month or two ago that allows them to criminalize sitting, sleeping, um, camping in different parts of the city and you sort of, and they can pass it neighborhood by neighborhood. And so slowly over the last month, weeks, you've just watched over and over again. Oh, it's criminalized here. It's criminalized here. It's criminalized here. Uh And it just feels like, and every time the organizations who are sort of leading this charge are like, let's call in and let's leave public comment, um, for the city council hearing. But every time there's another vote and every time it's the same two people saying no, and everyone else says yes. And, it just feels like the experience of watching this happen is just defeat after defeat. And I think that as someone who has not been doing underground organizing for my whole life, I think it's been a dawning realization for me that organizing or any kind of worldly political work does require defeat after defeat. You want to call it, you want the miracle to happen now. You want the miracle to happen with this, this particular day when enough outcry happens or enough pushback happens and this bill doesn't pass but no it's another day's you know that there's something of how do you stay connected to this larger fight how do you keep your spirits up to stay in it when you watch defeat after defeat happen yeah do you think it's almost like the relocation from the political miracle to a ritual miracle is like a coping mechanism for being defeated time and again. I mean, I think it is like, if you think that the power of God manifests in the good guys win, like materially, militarily, you will become an atheist. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you're not gonna, like, that's too disappointing. The fact is, though, that like, the on the ground victory, I think what needs to happen for like homelessness to not be criminalized is something of a spiritual revolution, at least in enough people to, to start to see the cruelty of that and how imperative it is that we avoid cruelty for our spiritual hygiene, you know, like just to remain good people, you have to sympathize with the poor and help them materially, right? So, like, I'm always, I guess it's like, uh, I don't know, change yourself first, that kind of frustrating talk. Well, but it's that's that's the only way these things stick, is if that deeper change happens. I, yeah. I was thinking this morning, we have a bunch of different scales of miracles in our tradition. There's sort of like... I feel like there's like dollar store miracles, slightly tacky miracles, which is like Moses throwing the stick down. It becomes a snake. And that's like you know, the magician, Pharaoh's magicians can do that. That feels like it's sort of, you know, that's the dollar store miracle. And then you have like incredible blockbuster miracles, like the parting of the Red Sea. That is, you watch that happen. And it's just like, this is not, you've never seen anything like it in your life and you'll never forget it. And it's immediately apparent that this is an otherworldly thing happening. But the thing that's weird about the Hanukkah miracle is you don't even know it's necessarily happening when it's happening. Like you light the candle, light the light, light the oil, and you have one day. It's like, oh, good. It's, oh, wow. It's like two days. Okay, this is going a little longer than we thought it was. And then like three days. Wow, it's going three. You don't don't know that this is the miracle of eight days of oil until after it's over. Yeah. I think that unlike the parting of the Red Sea where you know it's happening in the moment, this one you don't know it's happening in the moment. And I think that there's... Somebody has to... Yeah, tell the story of it for it to be seen as a miracle. Exactly, exactly. It has to be. 
and it also is the kind of miracle where I just think it's a miracle where we're allowed to be in uncertainty for a long time. We're allowed to not be sure. We're allowed to not be, we don't know as it's happening, even as it's unhappy, as it's happening, that it's, we're not sure that it's going to, where we're going to end up. And if, yeah. you know, if you think about this from the sort of mystical point of view, seven, seven, eight days, you have seven days of creation. And then eight is sort of like the extra, holy extra. It's this, it's this image of completion of something that has become completely whole. And our experience of being through the moving through the world is not of an experience of wholeness all the time. It's an experience of fear, uncertainty, of struggle, of confusion, of not even being sure where to look for what. Um, yeah. But somehow, when we look back, we see that this is a miracle and that we're inhabiting it as as we speak. Yeah. Oh, it's I like it. Question four. This is a perfect hinge into question four. Question four. What darkness are we hoping to light? What do we do with darkness? What do we do with light? This is almost the most immediate theme of Hanukkah that like it happens at a dark time of the year and we light candles and enjoy their light specifically in the darkest time of the year. Um, it's been metaphorized into oblivion with, with Hanukkah in, in all kinds of different ways. I think maybe a place to start is with your what you brought in from Audre Lorde. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like one of the big things we've been talking about is in some ways been a, a defense of darkness, um, or just like a reconnection to darkness as being a, not just an absence but a presence in this holiday. Um, this was last Hanukkah. I, something clicked in my brain between these two passages from I think two different Audre Lorde essays. She for one thing, talks about the importance of darkness. Um, she says, these places of possibility within ourselves are dark because they are ancient and hidden. They have survived and grown strong through darkness. Within these deep places, each one of us holds an incredible reserve of energy and power of unexamined and unrecorded emotion and feeling. Mm. And she's talking about the parts of ourselves that seem most forbidding, the parts of ourselves that might seem most confusing, most uncertain, most full of pain are actually really, really important. And we don't want to rush to dispel them. Um, and, it, mm. you know, he, hearing the Hanukkah story in light of that, it makes me realize that it's not just about bringing in any old oil into the temple. It's not turning on the fluorescence overhead. And let's just like, let's turn the lights on, let's clean this place up, let's get it back into functioning state. It's about being really careful and specific about what light you're illuminating in the darkness. And the other Lord passages, she says, the quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives. It is within this light that we form those ideas by which we pursue our magic and make it realized. It's not just any, it's not any light. It's a very specific kind of light. And as we're entering the darkness, which feels like a sacred act and an important act and to dwell in the darkness, which feels important, we want to be really specific about which light we're lighting, which flame, which oil we're using. Yeah, right. And it, and it made me think about them going into the temple and they could just have lit the whole temple, but, but they... Maybe, you know, maybe they were carrying torches or whatever, or also putting up regular torches. But I just had this image, like, imagining the temple being all completely dark, and they're just 
it they're they're leaving it dark they because they're looking for the right fuel they'd rather have darkness than than the wrong kind of light i mean there's the 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 hasidic thing is to see the hanukkah light as being like a spiritual illumination you know like shining wisdom and love all around us and this Audrey lord stuff thinking about what fuels our our spiritual radiance if, if even if we're spiritually radiant are we spiritually radiant on bad premises like should we worry about that um because that kind of light is not just to help us see but it's to it's for its own sake so the quality of the light matters and i yeah, so I think about times that I've spent, spent that I felt like spiritually excited and like lit up. Sometimes I'll have a experience in a Orthodox show that like feels like a shot of joy and like aliveness and awakeness. And then I think about like how I kind of have always had to be closeted to be in an Orthodox show. And I think of all the people who can't be there and how the who is left out and what does that do to what to even what feels like a great light you know or in any jewish community it makes me think about who's who's left out and what kind of fuel we're using is it consecrated or has it been pissed in by by the empire (laughs) yeah um, you always can tell it smells very particular when oil's been pissed in by empire the Maimonides that you bring in and, and thinking about that song, Walk On In Darkness, does I, I feel like that oh, has thanks. also been really with me. Um, okay, yeah. Should I, should I read the Maimonides passage or a little part of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I got into this passage a long time ago. I don't know, probably 10 years ago or something. It's from um, the introduction to the Guide for the Perplexed, a book by Moses Maimonides from like the 14th century or something. He writes, at times the truth shines so brilliantly that we perceive it as clear as day. Our nature and habit then draw a veil over our perception and we return to a darkness almost as dense as before. We are like those who through, though beholding frequent flashes of lightning, still find themselves in the thickest darkness of the night. On some, the lightning flashes in rapid succession, and they seem to be in continuous light, and their night is as clear as the day. By others, only once during the whole night is a flash of lightning perceived. He goes on with different examples of like kinds of light you might experience in the darkness. But he says, the degrees in the perfection of men vary according to these distinctions. Concerning those who never beheld the light even for one day, but walk in continual darkness, It is written, they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. Psalms 82, verse 5. And I guess my thought since I read that was always like, well, I want to see the light of truth, but if the multitude of ordinary men, no, I didn't quote that part. If the multitude of ordinary men walk in darkness, shouldn't that be where my sympathies lie? And isn't it elitist to try to separate myself from the ordinary and live in the light of the truth. And it made me want to like live in the darkness. Shouldn't we be walking on in darkness together? And then I wrote this song, Walk On In Darkness, available on my album, Day of the Dog, which came out in 2013. Um, 
but the mood and and the, the lyrics of that song are, are pretty oblique. They're not, but but it came from this idea that like I live in confusion most of the time and like pain and um and I just like I don't understand the universe or I or even my my city or even my block. I feel like I'm walking in darkness, fumbling through life and aren't we all i don't know what's it like to just um be there even if you are hungering for the light i mean yeah i love that song i love that album and i love that kind of defiant embrace of darkness been reading a lot about thinking a lot about death (laughs) and this beautiful book who dies and then and this book that my friend Catherine turned me on to called Bridge of Beyond by Simone Schwartz-Bart. It's really one of the most stunning things I've read in a long time. But she talks in that book beautifully about death and uncertainty and calls it, um, there's this one moment where she refers to it as the sparkling brightness of death. Um, or and she says something about like these people who sort of like flail around in the night of the senses and in their flailing they have a sort of panache and then that in that panache is there's the splendor is their splendor like the the yeah in the heart of uncertainty out of it all comes their splendor and i i think that that willingness to embrace that so much of our lives are lived in darkness and in uncertainty and in the fragility of our own lives and the lives around us is incredibly powerful and sort of really does give off a kind of light to 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 be fully fully present with that um mm. i i i think of this this is farm upstate where i've spent some time um doing these residencies and there's a fire that gets lit by the lake some nights when people are gathering and i you come down at the beginning of the night and you everybody has your lanterns and you walk down this long path through the woods to get to this edge of this lake and this fire and then at but one of my favorite things to do is at the end of the night when, you know, some people have already gone to bed and there's like passing around a bottle of whiskey and there's marshmallows and whatever is to leave in a moment when I know I can go back alone and I don't bring a light with me. And I just walk through the darkness, like walk up the path into the woods and it's kind of terrifying. Um, But there's something that happens when you start walking is you realize that the path begins to glow a little bit. And even when you're covered with trees, like even on a very bright moonlit night, there's a long stretch where you really have very little light available to you. But even then, there is this incredible light that is present when you allow your eyes to adjust to the darkness. Um, and so you go for a while and it's this, it really does feel like an act of faith where you're trusting, I'm trusting my feet, I'm not trusting my, my mind, I'm not trusting my eyes, I'm trusting my feet. And this sort of sense I have for where the path is and where it isn't. And then at a certain point you emerge the trees separating you're in this field and there's like a horse in the field and the light, the sky and a moonlit night, you can have this sort of incredible moon light happening over you. And then, you know, you're almost back to where you need to be. But I, it just feels like an incredibly sacred thing to walk in darkness. Um, yeah. And to realize how much light there is um, when you really don't have access to your cell phone flashlight or, a lantern or sort of the illumination of the kind of tawdry certainties that I think we cling to in our lives. Yeah. Kind of artificial light. To really not 
know and you feel things you never thought were usable tools become usable tools. I want to get in this one thing about Hillel and Shammai. Yeah, I think we gotta. We gotta. Because Hillel and Shammai, okay, these are um, Tanaim. These are the Talmud-era rabbis of, of the Mishnah. Um, so early, early, early rabbis. And the thing with Hillel and Shammai is they always disagree, and you always hear both sides of their arguments in the Talmud, and Hillel is always the one who almost always wins. So Hillel won with Hanukkah, and Hillel's Hanukkah candlelighting method was you start with one on the first night, and then you add one each night, and uh, that mirrors how the miracle grows and grows, and um, and the light grows and grows. But Shammai's idea was that you would mirror the diminishing oil, and so you'd start with eight candles on the first night and take one away each night. and um, and Hillel's version is the one, it, there's an emotional appeal to it. Like you want things to be getting better and brighter, not like more dire. And there's, there's, there's interpretations of it. Like, I mean, one thing that I love that like Chabad rabbis always say is like, what was enough yesterday is not enough today. You know, we need more light. We need more joy, more spiritual dedication uh, each day of our lives. And that's what Hanukkah teaches us. I just started thinking about Shammai's menorah and enacting the waning resources. And as, as the nights progress, the light gets less and less. And um, I think like consciousness of our need of God would get more and more intense. And uh, the eighth night, it just like feels like the, the desperate need for help from above is like reaching a fever pitch, you know? And there's something like very dramatic about that and cool to me about the idea. Or like, or like what do those two ideas like do to, to, to the, to the sense of struggle against empire and um, struggle to manifest in the world as ourselves? I mean, maybe we need to, I'm, I'm feeling an impulse to bring back Shammai this year and do it that way because I've, I think that's quite beautiful. And also it, it feels like the logic of it is that all eight candles are contained in this one candle, that the magic, the full splendor of the complete Hanukkah, all the miracles and all the arrays of light are contained in this one flickering little flame. It's like a training, you know, we need, I think that that's, we need a lot of apparatus to get us somewhere when we're first starting out. And the more we practice, the more we're able to do with less and less. I'd love like a Hillel year than a Shammai year. And, and yeah. you, everyone remembers which, which kind of year it is on Hanukkah. Is the intensity of our dependence getting more and more intense? Uh, or is like our feeling of abundance and, and ability to share and shine and is that what's growing as the light of our podcast today wanes i feel this impulse to say all the things that we haven't said and i'll just say that there's there are so many incredible interpretations of what the particular mysticism of these lights there's stuff in the spot i met there's stuff one of our listeners shared this idea that the candles are sort of like little holes in the fabric of reality that we can see through to eternity um, mm. there's like really yeah. just gorgeous 
versions of this as, as you as you look around. Um, but one thing that does seem consistent is this idea that I think is the last piece is that there's a sense of seeking that, you know, just before Pesach, we use a candle and a feather to seek the chametz. Um, but there is a sense that a candle is not just about light as sort of the presence that's here. It's about something that's searching. It's there's an active, there's an active energy to it. Um, and that we, I think it's in Isaiah. There's some line about like where, where God wants us to seek God, that, that it's not just, we can't just sort of sit there and, oh yeah, this is from Jeremiah. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me. Um, hmm. That we need, we need to participate in this active process of looking, um, of chasing, of squinting into the darkness. Um, and that the candles are sort of that, there's the, in Proverbs, kiner mitzvah the Torah, or that the, meets photo the candles and the Torah is the light, but that these, we have these tools that we have at our disposal that we use to get somewhere else that we use the light of this candle to see something, something beyond. Yeah. Amen. Oh, happy Hanukkah, everybody. Yeah. That just about does it. And thanks all for listening to this. Send us an email. Love you.